Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, once again, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Lenny Briscoe Institute for the Study of Urban Criminology here on the beautiful Hoople campus. This week we're talking about a case of stolen property. A recently translated cuneiform tablet has added to the story of how, in 542 BCE, a tunic and sheep were stolen in the city of Uruk. Isaniah, the slave of Remut, was quickly nicked and ratted out 39 accomplices, who were then arrested but released to house arrest on the recommendation of Uruk's leading citizens. So what's going on? How was criminal justice administered in the Babylonian period anyway? Why was the nearly 3,000-year-old Iana temple involved, and how did King Nabonidus, back from a Jack Dorsey-like spiritual retreat in Saudi Arabia, or his representative get involved? Just how do Assyriologists use broken tablets scattered in various collections to reconstruct broader social systems like crime and punishment and individual events like a stolen sheep? All we can say is, it's complicated. Okay, so before we we all expire from from something, um, let's... Let's get right to it, and and here's a here's a lightning round that uh, is I hopefully will hopefully be apropos. Who's your favorite TV lawyer? <laughs> oh boy! Wow. Hmm. Oh, huh. That's favorite TV lawyer. Jeez, it's a good question. Yeah, it is a good <laughs> question. I I, I don't really I Alex don't really watch those things anymore. I used to quite a bit. Right. Alex, do you have one in mind? Uh, yeah. I mean, Perry Mason is is sort of the gold standard for TV lawyers. Yeah. Stolid, reliable. All right. Not terribly humorous. Um, Jackie Childs. <laughs> Jackie Childs is good. That is Jackie good. Jackie Childs is very good. You know, Bruce Zuckercorn from <laughs> Arrested Development. Right. Oh I, yeah, the, right. Blah blah blah. Oh. <laughs> he's he's got to be on that list. <laughs> Good point. Okay, all right. Well, I'll I'll say um, Harry Hamlin in L.A. Law. Um, yeah. Or Ally McBeal. <laughs> yeah, those are good ones. The single female lawyer. Right. <laughs> uh Well, Alex took all the good ones. All the good ones. There are hundreds of them. Yeah, but there are not many. I can't, I mean, I don't think there are a lot of good ones. Right. I think that 
lawyer TV shows were very much are very much a relic, and that the last two good ones that I can recall are what you mentioned, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, and they go way back already. And they go way right, exactly. That, but well, still, well, now I guess you have the lawyer as the antihero, the Saul Goodman. Um, oh yeah, Saul Goodman. Okay. That you're right. That's it. That would be yeah. my response. That's good. That's good. Right. I haven't watched that, but Alex, yeah. you got them all. <laughs> <laughs> Extra points for me. You 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 win a free uh a uh tablet in Acadian. <laughs> That's good. I'll put it with uh put it with my others. And um Well, I guess that brings us to the uh, to the reason why I've called you all here today. <laughs> One because one of you has um, stolen a tunic and some sheep. Small potatoes, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, but this case uh, seemed to seem to go on. Um, I, I yeah. guess they had nothing else to do in the 14th year of Nabonidus. Well, that's that's an interesting. <laughs> well, I don't know. The 14th year seems to be of Nabonidus seems to be pretty important as as somewhere it mentioned that Nabonidus returned to Babylon sometime between his 13th and 15th year. Right. So he was either packing stuff up or already there or <laughs> waiting for the consignment to come from back from Tama. But it seems like those would have been three busy years for him. Right. Well, apparently it was busy. It was a busy period. Uh, and it comes out to, I think, 542 BCE um, for, oh, for right. organized crime down there in, in, uh, you know, <laughs> Southern Mesopotamia. Right. Uh, can and I also, uh, over, well, an, an apropos topic for uh, recording on January 6th. Well, I don't think anybody's stealing any sheep or two. <laughs> oh, oh, clearly you missed there. the video because they were stealing some animals and, and sewing them, sewing them into tunics. Oh, one guy. <laughs> um, while, while we're on the topic of date, um, the one of the first documents mentioned here. Uh, was written on the ninth day of Av, which, according to my my mathematical calculations, in the year five forty two, this was forty four years to the day after the fall of Jerusalem to um, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, not that that's relevant at all, but I just thought, you know, how often do you comes out that the ninth of Av? So, if we're to believe that the fall actually came on the ninth of Av, right, right. So well, that's another podcast, and that's another podcast, right. Um, it's a very popular day if you're if you're filled with filled with remorse and sadness and despondency. Right, right. So it all kind of comes together, doesn't it? But but let me uh, give a shout out here to uh, to our new friend uh, in Poland, uh, Radek uh, Tarasiewicz, who sent me this uh, this article called "Never Ending Story: Some News About the Gang from Uruk," um, which was very uh, very kind of him, which appeared in the journal. Iraq, and you know, it just it just struck me about um, crime, crime and punishment. That uh, you know, these guys, this this gang, a couple of slaves, a couple of non-slaves, uh, busted for stealing a, a, some sheep and a and some clothing, brought yeah. before a grand jury of a kind, eight nobles. And uh, a whole lot of uh, witnesses, 
A lot of witnesses. Remut, son of Nergal Ashared, is ordered by the king to denounce the others before this grand ju jury. Then there's another tablet the next day. And, uh, you know, these guys make bail and the bail is guaranteed by a prominent family. So what's going on here? And then a week after that, um, uh, Isin Aya fingers 39 people as um, gang members. And yeah. they're all known from other texts as miscreants. Yeah. So there's a lot of misdemeanoring. Well, I suppose these are actually felonies, but... Um, Actual demeanors. <laughs> um, but there's so what do, what do we what do we learn well, from this? Well, hold it. There's the other most important point, which is oh, which right. is that Nabonidus seems to be personally involved. Right. I mm -hmm. mean, for, for whatever reason, this court this case rose rose to the top, or there's more involvement by the king in low level. Uh, matters such as this than originally surmised. Yeah. Right. And you were you were looking for the phrase Amat Shari, which is in the fourth line of of the of the article. By order oh. of the king, Amat Shari to Ili Remani. Mm -hmm. Um so so the king's involved. And we mm -hmm. you know this is this is interesting. This is uh, this is sort of new. So to me anyway. right so so the question i have right away is is this um is the king <laughs> what level are we talking about is this really a bigger crime um dealing with with bigger things than it appears on the surface so that the king gets involved or is the king kind of a smaller petty king who gets involved in low-level uh crimes i mean we don't think of nebonites as a small petty king well, well I, I would back up and say that it, it's a nice illustration of what um, Assyriologists who deeply, deeply inhabit these periods, particularly in the second millennium. Uh, yeah, the second millennium. No, the first millennium. First, first millennium. millennium. But they inhabit them in any millennium. Any millennium they have a text for, they're they're literally in their Fully own resident. way back machine. Yeah, yeah. But this was so complicated because there's so many texts right. and there's so many names. There's a gazillion names that none of us with our so-called educations could even remotely keep track of who's doing what to whom. Right. True. Uh, um, so we speak, as always, in terms of broad generalities. Right. This is this is also, you know, unlike a lot of our topics, which are especially our archaeological topics, which we find um, that the newspapers have really run with. Right. Um, this is something that we didn't find in the newspaper. Alex, you you came across this this article and wanted to talk about it. And uh, because Assyriology really doesn't get its due in newspapers, partly because of this detailed um, in inhabiting of the ancient world that the Assyriologists do. It's not I would say inhibition, but it's not. It's inhabitation. It's inhabitation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's not something that journalists have an easy time translating to the public. And frankly, neither do we, but we're going to try anyway. Right. And I will just note, because this is sort of a broad theme that we've mentioned before, is that it's interesting to juxtapose Mesopotamian texts and how they get presented to the public or not versus any inscription from the Southern Levant, any inscription from 
you know, in particular Israel, which gets a public treatment that we just commented on on an earlier podcast that is, you know, far very outsized compared to this kind of stuff. Right. Right. Absolutely. And in part, it's well, it's because this kind of stuff is frankly obscure. And also it's very quotidian. You know, we're dealing with this this very complicated to understand uh, who stole what, uh, who was involved, whose slave was whose. Um, there are also different level, uh, strata of society represented here. It's all very complicated and it's not easy to, to digest, I think. Um, whereas the inscriptions are sensationalized, as we've been noting in previous. But that's the great thing about this, that there are, you know, thousands and thousands of of legal tablets from the from the first millennium. And people are suing each other left and right, and there are contract disputes, and you know, your your ox gored my <laughs> gored my my kid, and uh, the you know the the brick from your roof fell on my head and um, you, you, one of your slaves stole a, you know, a, a t-shirt and <laughs> right. somehow all of this, and it just goes on and on and on. And there, and to be able to, again, co cohabit, co-inhabit, to live in this, to live in this world, to reconstruct this world as an Assyriologist, um, is really a kind of, you know, incredible accomplishment (laughs) which which we're clearly incapable of right right but uh, but you know you really can get into you know micro kinds of events like who broke into the locker and stole the you know stole the t-shirt right well it's it's two kinds of things one is contra archaeology it really it's the individual in antiquity right right with real people and in archaeology, especially the way we were sort of the how we came through it in processual archaeology, you almost never deal with individuals. You always deal with big things, processes and how things happen and blah, blah, blah. So one, it's at the individual level. Uh, and two, uh, as you already noted, Alex, is the incredible amount of detail that we get. So much detail, we don't even know what to do with it or what it what it means, but it gives us a lot of ability to really flesh out how things worked at, mm-hmm. as you said, Rachel, the quotidian level and sort of, <coughs> excuse me, build society up from these mm-hmm. details. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that the quotidian is actually fascinating. So first of all, all these names of the, the participants and the witnesses, so they've now, they've now kind of gained a little bit of posterity, right? They, let's see, Isinaya and um, Ardia, uh, who um, Balatu accused of, wait a second, Balatu said that they gave him a tunic and a sheep. Okay, so these are three names right here. These people, here we are talking about them on a podcast. <laughs> in 2023 everybody um, gets their 15 minutes maybe yeah that's... but they never expected their 15 minutes and here you know we're we're really learning yeah. literal details cool. um and you know we do we do in archaeology household archaeology you do deal with the individual level but we'll never know their names and here we right their names right yes household archaeology boy we should really do a whole episode on that yeah we should because <laughs> that's a really interesting uh 
kind of methodology in which you're dealing at the individual level, but you're dealing at the individual level in a very anonymous way, like, you know, yeah. grinding, <laughs> grinding flour, right? Right. <laughs> right. Well, that's what it comes down to is grinding flour, um, making pots, chipping stone tools and worshiping little goddesses that are on the shelf. Well, it's the, it's the craft. It's sort of the craft view because it's, you know, textile. It's all the production aspects. Yeah. But it's it's anonymized. But I like this because it's crime. It's punishment. <laughs> it's okay. uh, it's law. It's justice. In the criminal justice system, there's, you know, there's grand juries. There's officials. There's investigators. And uh, right. people are, the nobles are stepping in there. On the one hand, the nobles are sort of the grand jury. On the other hand, the nobles are are you know making bail for some of these uh some of these characters there's house it, arrest yeah. i love the whole concept of how is house arrest monitored in <laughs> first millennium uh and we don't even know do we know if or can we assume that all of the, the all of this is happening in babylon even though the crimes were committed in uruk is that correct oh that's interesting um i don't know I, I don't think so. I don't know. I think it's all happening in Uruk. I it's thought, all happening yeah. in Uruk? So all the texts are found. And this was the other thing that I kind of had to track down the provenance of where all these texts are coming from, which all seem to be from the Iana temple at, at Uruk. And um, this there is apparently a Neo-Babylonian archive found there. Um, right. And that, that was one of the other interesting things that, you know, the, the temple is the place where all of these um all of these records are residing because it's a big yeah. it's a big um sort of proxy for the king in terms of economic and political control so all of the all of the case files end up in the uh, in the temple and right. uh, you know that says something about how society was organized at this point well, this is the other thing, you know, I think we all learned, or at least I learned many moons ago, you know, Mesopotamian society, there's a palace precinct and a temple precinct and they're, they're separate and they each have their own sort of competitors. Right. And I don't know, is that, is that from Jakobson's? I, I don't know. It goes back many, many years, but here it seems to be a little bit more, more um, combined, right? Because you're having criminal issues, uh, you know, crimes take place within the temple precinct or affect the temple precinct. Um and I believe that one of our characters, Balatu, in some other earlier text, was uh, listed as giving whatever, maybe it was sheep, to the temple as his taxes. So it's all kind of interwoven. Right. So there's a couple things on that, uh, um, one of which is always uh, the extraordinary level of detail that um, Mesopotamian society keeps track of. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, the, the amount of scribal production over yeah. very, very, very small matters. And that's always astounding. Um, it is. And then the second point, I have no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> well, there, there's also the, 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 the idea that, um, now I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> all right. Um, no, they're they're writing all this stuff down, but every every transaction 
is is being monitored in some way yeah and every yeah, a lot of monitoring and mm-hmm. you know when the when the tunic goes missing <laughs> the vast wheels of justice start start moving in in this case and somehow tunic, tunic and sheep well the sheep right, don't forget the sheep. Tunic the sheep could have been on the sheep <laughs> or, or but it, it it's like all of these all of these things that are very familiar to us you know somebody knocks over the the liquor store um which we read about in in the papers and it it made me think i mean the reason i i went looking for the, an article like this was because i saw a movie a couple of weeks ago about gangs in um brazil in the favelas yeah and mm-hmm. i'm blanking out what the name of the movie was but it's all about you know drugs and guns and prostitution and uh, and they, these are all kid gangs and they move up through the ranks and I started wondering well there must have been something like that in in Mesopotamia um, and clearly there was and clearly there was you know we don't know about drugs per se we don't know about loan sharks and prostitution per se well we know I about prostitution a little bit I mean right but we don't know about the 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 economics and the justice of it and the you know how it played out at the street level right well this Um, is this is actually what's interesting because we're hearing about how this plays out this is not prostitution but this is how this plays out in on the street level right Um, we don't know about hijacking we don't know about runaway slave well maybe a little bit about runaway slaves in different periods we certainly know about a lot about slaves here and there because they're players in this story right well exactly Um, and there's also the whole idea i keep interrupting i'm sorry but the whole idea of so some of these criminal gangs at least two of them were slaves and others were not so there's this kind of uh, mixing of at least the lower strata elements in society they're all part of part of these gangs right so this is actually an indication that uh well firstly of course slavery is very yeah ancient near east is very different Right, right, right. You can or, be or put it this way: all forms of slavery have their own, you know, their own sort of uh, inhabit their own kinds of worlds. Yeah. But in this yeah. case, it suggests that you know slaves have had a degree of autonomy, right? That that uh, you know they were mixing it up uh, in different ways um, and yeah. making decisions for themselves and taking action. In this case, illegal. Uh, which is not so surprising. I guess, Alex, in many ways, maybe what you're saying is, wow, this is really familiar. And, it's all very familiar. And yeah. and, uh, and that's very striking to have a very familiar kind of system of jurisprudence or a very familiar kind of, you know, uh, social landscape or ur- urban landscape uh, at the at the lowest levels. Um, and. Right. Well, so, you know, we, we know a lot about from from texts in all periods, cuneiform texts. We know a lot about contracts. We know a lot about production. We know a lot about law. <clears throat> um, I think we know a little bit less about crime or it's not it's not sort of um, publicized yeah. the same way. Maybe Assyriologists are reluctant to <laughs> to air the dirty laundry. Well, I don't um, think they're reluctant. I think they air it. It's just that that's they inhabit a very rarefied place. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to bring it to the people. 
Yeah, and right. you know, archaeologists don't really see the crime unless we see an absolute clear murder by you know a partially mangled skeleton or something. We don't really see yeah. crime at this level the way a seriologist can. I hadn't really thought about that before. Right. Um, well, but that, the other, go, go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, right, so, but the and the other thing we don't see are are kind of um, underground economies. Right. Clearly. Yeah. We don't see we don't see drugs and prostitution. We don't see smuggling. Sometimes these things are talked about. <laughs> drugs and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, we don't see drugs and prostitution in the archaeological record. Well, that's right. And well, well, we, well we're beginning to see drugs. We've been talking about opium and marijuana. Yeah, and I mean, you know, well, that's on the up and up. Well, that's that's on the open. Good point. Good point. Well, um, maybe drugs are on the up. It's and more up. of a four twenty kind of a scenario there. <laughs> Right, but maybe maybe drugs were okay, and that's prostitution right. certainly was okay at a certain level. Yeah, you got temple prostitution. Right. Uh, well, that's a whole other thing. That's, I know that's a whole other thing. Good. Right. Um. Wait, but so here's apropos of what you're saying, Alex. I think is um one thing that struck me from one of these earlier texts where some of the same names appear in is um you have um several people in one text. Um, several people in the gang admitting that they committed several thefts, including a girl gang member admitting that she took a tunic from somebody named Nupta, a witness in another document. And it just sounds like teenage girls stealing, you know, dresses from shoplifting. Other. She's either shoplifting or or saying, hey, she has this thing. It's really nice. I'm taking it for myself. And they're kind of going back and forth like this. And yet it's being raised to the level of something that the king needs to get involved in, which I don't quite understand. But but you really do have this kind of interpersonal, um, you know, they're they're just really at each other in a way that we see clearly in this document. All right, I'm going to just uh, in, interrupt here, and I want to talk about some of the favorite things uh, that I that I've found in in these articles or in these texts. Um, it talks about. Um, uh what's it called you know um i can't even think <laughs> it's a good drugs and prostitution it, no it talks about house arrest so yes. i thought that was really interesting and i wondered how that was sort of mediated like who's in charge of that but it mm. also mentions private prisons that criminals or defaulting debtors um could be in house arrest rather than being kept in a temple or a private prison. And I thought the idea of, of private prisons in Mesopotamian society, clearly something that's overlooked. <laughs> so, something very, uh, has a very fresh and contemporary feeling yeah. to uh, it as well. Yeah. So I, I wish there was a little bit more on that. Um, and what, it, and also were, were, were there prisons in temples? Uh, interesting. That I, that I've never heard, but, well, it um, says being uh, but, you know, criminals or defaulting de debtors being kept in a temple. Right. Maybe, they a were, lot of... maybe they're just a force to attend services because <laughs> attendance was down and, and the police <laughs> wanted to really, you know, feel like Boost they were the really contributing. Right. Well, a, a lot of a lot of, you know, these these texts that are crime, you know, crime related are defaulting on on debts, but they're like official debts. Right. So you, the temple lends you a sheep, and uh, and it you don't pay it back, or the temple lends you, you know, a couple of bucks, mm -hmm. 
or an individual lends you and and you default and, and there's so maybe we are seeing a lot of loan sharking just it's a sort of at the you know quasi quasi official level right well what yeah i mean this is the thing it's it is underground economies are actually economies right and and <laughs> so where are they <laughs> right and and so what I, i'm i guess i'm trying to say what's the difference between a quote unquote legitimate government and a semi underground one and uh boy that's a that's a very timely topic <laughs> well the the, right. but the government the government is involved in everything at one level and and uh and nothing at another level as, <laughs> as long as uh, you know as long as you as long as you play the game and uh but the the through the temple certainly in in this period the, where the king was controlling the temples much more directly um and and the very early periods when the when the royal establishment and the temples were ever were were everything but how much so how much of the economy is outside of our view well, mm -hmm. you know, we're outside of about, control. Yeah, the issue about the economy is something that we've all discussed, not on this podcast, but, you know, in the late Bronze Age in the Eastern Mediterranean, there's unprecedented international economic interaction. And we know nothing about it, right? There are no texts that talk about Bank of Hattusha lending a Canaanite X for shipping Y. We don't know anything about all of that. Um, we know that there are banks in Hattusha, but mm -hmm. uh, from earlier periods, but um, so we don't know a lot about economic mechanisms outside of Mesopotamia in general. And in Mesopotamia itself, they're not, I don't think we're getting the level of distinction between underground and above ground, except maybe for instance, in the old Assyrian period at Kanesh, where they do talk about smuggling, right? We get a lot of, not a lot, but there's an X amount of information right. about smuggling and avoiding paying taxes and things like that. So, mm. right, and that's an example of information about an underground economy. Right, that's interesting. Um, but there, yeah. but uh, on this analogy, uh, there must have been kidnapping and extortion. There must have been burglary. <laughs> there must have been strong arm robberies. There must have been, um, you know, contract cr contract murder. In you know, some things are uh, uh, hijacking. We know about. Um, Though it happened and, very very slowly. But it happened very very slowly. <laughs> Those donkeys over. No no no. Over, Run over, faster. Move, over more. Okay, stop. <laughs> Everybody stop. Everybody stop. Okay, we're gonna start collecting stuff from this, you know, 50 animal caravan. And now we're going to load it onto our donkeys. So the whole thing happened really, really slowly. <laughs> so if there were any gendarmes around, they should have been able to stop it. Right, right. Well, I mean, it also, that speaks to, you know, you need large gangs, I suppose, because you need, everybody needs to have a, a I don't know, a dagger or something like you got to. Well, but how, how many people did they, did, did, did they, rob? you know, in this particular case, a missing tunic and sheep yeah. <laughs> led to the the denunciation of a gang of thirty nine people. Well, hold it. So that's what I want to ask. This guy is Sanaya. 
Yeah. He's the the big denouncer, right? He's the, he's the, uh, what's it called? The The snitch. Yeah. He's the snitch. He's the snitch. Sid the snitch. Um, did he, do you think that there were really 39 people who you think he was getting, you think he was making up names to, you know, sort of to, uh, to better his own situation? Well, that's, that's a really great question, right? Because he, he admitted to stealing the tunic and the sheep, but then he gave them to some other guy. So he didn't actually have them anymore. And then apparently he may or may not have stolen a whole bunch of other stuff. And and there was a lineup. Can can you pick out your sheep? (laughs) (laughs) Can you pick out your tunic? Um, But but no. But but I what I think is if I'm getting it, which I may or may not be, he apparently turned himself in. But if all he stole was the tunic and the sheep, then maybe he gets off without being punished. But if there's more stuff that he stole that he didn't admit to, then he's in trouble. Um, And he therefore he names names. He's naming names, a whole bunch of them, and and you know certainly in 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 Egypt, contemporary Egypt, earlier Egypt, we know that um, that uh, forced confessions played a very strong part of of the criminal justice system. I hadn't even thought of that. God, <laughs> um, and in in Egypt, I think the I think it's called the bastinado, being beaten on the soles of your feet. Um, <laughs> Ouch. was was one of those interrogation methods enhanced interrogation methods as far as i know we have no evidence for that in mesopotamia but i'd be surprised if somebody if somebody didn't you know come up with the idea sure. maybe we'll just smack this mook isaniah around and see what he comes up with oh. and he, go ahead no he comes up with 39 names right right um the the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet is is you know uh, well this is the wrong time period but but we had we know so much about Mesopotamian law codes right and there's always been conversations about whether these were actual laws like Hammurabi's law code and all the ones that come before that were just erected in the town square so that everybody saw and you know you 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 know how strong the king is as opposed to think punishments that actually happened in in in, in courts of law. So here we're having kind of the other side of it. We're not seeing what's going on in a law code where you're publicly saying, you know, if you cut off somebody's foot, your foot's going to get cut off. Here you're seeing what actually happened. Um, Guys stealing tunics and sheep. And we don't hear about the punishments from these few documents, but but, but we're certainly hearing about the, the trial or the processes. Right. So, so Isaniah is involved with a, a bunch of guys who knock over the equivalent of a, of a candy store. And in terms of the scale of the crime and, but it goes before a, like a, the equivalent of a grand jury with these eight nobles, somehow the King is gets involved and the the bail for these guys is made by prominent families. Yeah. And Isaniah is basically he he's flipped. And right. so and he gives up 39 people. And I can't so I can't help but thinking that there's a lot more to this that we're not that we're not seeing. Well, that's that, always and that's yeah. the same thing with law codes, is that mm-hmm. you know, all of these things are formulaic in a way to uh gloss or give some kind of prominence to 
bigger societal issues that they mean something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But all of these layers, I mean, we, 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 we sort of conceive of Mesopotamian society as being very hierarchical when there are these very separate uh, institutions and temples and prominent families. Um, when in fact, it's really a lot more like, um, you know, crime in North Jersey where Tony Soprano, um, you know, knows who's knocking over a, a store in his, in his territory and can make a call to some judges and to some crooked cops and get the punk off. Yeah. But he has to give up some other people because he has, you know, again, imaginary no, relationships, but it's so, and somehow the King gets involved. So it's not very hierarchical. You're like, well, it's well a, that's this, Anaya, this, this punk is two steps, three steps away from the King. Uh, right. Though, again, right. we have to, there's a, there seems to be a huge assumption that by inserting this little clause, uh, Amat Sharu or whatever, yeah, uh, that the king is actually involved as opposed to maybe, his office. Right, exactly. Maybe right. it's just a reference to his office and maybe it's uh, being used in this particular case for reasons that we don't really know. Um, but, you yeah. know, it is the Iana temple i was just gonna so say maybe they uh maybe they're able to throw around the king's name unlike other institutions right so so this leads me what you've both said leads me is this knocking off a candy store or is this a burglary of a home or a tip is, of the iceberg or is this stealing from the temple the temple treasury is this i mean i don't think that's been made clear like where you know <laughs> it's different being made an example of yeah but but again are you stealing from some official place are you stealing from a private place are you stealing from a place of business he didn't return a library book all right <laughs> bookman was called in i'm Bookman's not getting calling. an answer here um, no because we don't know and in fact we don't even know the resolution of this case right and that's sort of one of the you know quixotic aspects of doing a seriology is that you know, you look over texts, you read texts, and sometimes you find connections between bodies of material. Uh, the same name appears in kind of different ways. And so you're able to tease out something more comprehensive. And then sometimes you're left never knowing the ending of the story. Yeah. And this is one of those cases where we don't know the ending of the story. But that was one of the, the in a way that's sort of the one of the fun things about this is that somebody found a text that was excavated, you know, a hundred years ago, published it. 10 years later, somebody finds another text right. that's right. related to this, relates it to that and fleshes out the story yeah. a little bit more and it becomes, you know, much more complicated. Um, so it's not, it's not a linear um you know, resolution, you know, like Perry Mason in, in three acts, it just yeah. gets more and more complicated. And, uh, but it, it's a nice illustration of both the method, which is open-ended and really complicated, involves lots of, lots of names and, and well, lots it, of different tablets. Yeah. I mean, it talks about something that you raised earlier, which is, man, there's a lot of institutions and names involved mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. what does that tell us about you know the urban 
society at Uruk or anything else, that there were detectives and witnesses and um, thieves and prisons, prison officials and temple officials. And um, it almost makes it sound like, because this is just one small example, that if you expand it to the whole, you know, urban site of Uruk in the first millennium, that all it had was people running around, checking up and checking in and, you know, uh, imprisoning and taking care of and watching and recording. And um, it and must have been a very, very bureaucratic society in which um, everything was really pretty finely attuned. Exactly. And, and this is going on not just in Uruk, we have to assume. Right. But this is going on in all the various cities in in Babylonia, uh, and uh, and and that's that's a lot of crime when you think about it. Right, exactly. And and it's and 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 you know again th these are the cities, and to put unfair modern analogies into play, you know maybe this is New York and Chicago and D.C. Um, what's going on in the suburbs? There must be petty crimes going on in the suburbs, and you know going up to to their own minor courts i don't know um maybe it's not fair what? to cattle rustling do we know about that sheep, sheep rustling. rustling yeah there's got to be there's got to be texts uh about that yeah but it, it's just more things to incorporate into our kind of mental picture of of mesopotamia but is that is that too um, um here's the, the favorite word presentist uh -huh. um are we mirror Im imaging or are there really essential differences aside from the fact that they're all speaking, you know, Akkadian or something? Well, right. Or Neo-Babylonian. <laughs> Neo -Babylonian. Well, I don't think we, I don't think it's overly presentist because of things like house arrest. Right. right. You know, you know the, a very small angle on what's going on in the world presently and clearly in the first millennium BCE. Yeah. And so, that is, yeah, go ahead. No, that, that's it. Because you brought up the house arrest before, and that that is an interesting question because they're not wearing ankle bras bracelets, right? So, right. So, <laughs> so does that mean a guard is standing in front of their house and who's that guard and who are they working for and who's paying them? Right. Um, there are a lot of questions that this raises. Uh, my, my sense is that in, in a lot of ancient cities, as in a lot of traditional cities and settlements <clears throat> that everybody's eyes were on everybody else. And that if something out of the ordinary occurs, if the, if somebody unusual sets foot out of their house when they're supposed to be in there, word, word goes out. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know how you measure that or demonstrate that archeologically like like everything else so maybe this just sa all says something about the limitations of archaeology and the well, well that yeah. that raises so many other issues and there's an older not even that old article i think by carol myers talking about you know women communal activities uh where they relay information from one household to another which is how information gets gets uh moved around a community um, that's for Judah in the Iron Age, but uh, but you know, as soon as as soon as Balatu accuses uh, Isaniah and Ardia, the whole town bit by bit hears about it through semi-official gossip channels. Um, I mean, 
that's i'm reading it there's a really nice meditation on this kind of a thing by um orhan pamuk in um what's it called my name is red in which uh all takes place in istanbul uh and it all it involves mystery and crime um but that in that informal information you know nexus is really teased out really nicely in how word gets spread around um, mm-hmm. the city of Istanbul, which is also a village, right? Is that kind of what you were talking about, Alex? How yeah, these are urban <clears throat> environments, but they're also functioning at a very uh, informal village level. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So, you know, everybody's eyes are on everybody else. All the people are hanging out of their windows watching the street and uh and you know the kids are out playing and if anything is out of the ordinary it it is sensed mm-hmm. and that information travels and uh it all sounds rather claustrophobic to me <laughs> right right um, well, i wouldn't want to be living in in um, th- my final thought not that we're necessarily up to final thoughts but but i'll give one anyway is i wouldn't want to be living in the city I'd rather be on a farmstead outside of the city of Uruk in the Neo-Babylonian period. Um, it just sounds like then you'd be like compl- a crime-ridden New York in the 70s. Yeah. Then you'd be complaining about your high level of taxes and how you get nothing in return. Okay, that's that's probably true. Um, well, you'd probably be out there um, complaining about the sheep rustlers. I might be complaining about the sheep rustlers. Um or you just maybe. might be a sheep rustler. I was just going to say, maybe it. I would right. be a sheep rustler. Yeah. Right. And that, and that, you know, maybe there's an analogy with, with Westerns. Oh, okay. Ponderosa. <laughs> well, we'll save that for, we'll save that for another broadcast. Yeah. I was going to say a more mythic and non-existent historical episode. You couldn't really even imagine. Well, if we're going to start with TV lawyers and their and their right. mythos as a jumping off point, we might as well end with another mythos. So, either of you want to give final thoughts? Book them, Dono. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were they were a lot like us, but they they spoke much better Babylonian. Okay, nice. <laughs> well, this episode has me counting my tunics as well as my sheep. In the meantime, though, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Dumont Television Network. Be sure to catch another thrilling adventure of Jimmy Hughes' Rookie Cop, Fridays at 8.30. And so, to get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, and yes, it's a real email, at gmail.com. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.